Father our God, how awesome it is that we, you are our God, that we can call on you to be our Lord and Saviour. And all that we've focused on this morning, the blessing of it, it is to know you, eternal blessings. And the blessing of knowing you as our atoning sacrifice. And we don't want to take it for granted, the freedom that we have in this place to come under your word. We want to thank you so very much that we can, in freedom, come and hear your word. So prepare our hearts. Lord, open our hearts and our ears to hear and receive your word. Lord, change us. Teach us more of what it is to live for you. Amen. The readings from John 18 to verse 27. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they they replied. I am he, Jesus said, and Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus because this disciple was known to the high priest. He went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple, where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest? He demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. 
Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there, warming himself. So they asked him, You aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him, Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it, and at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Well, good morning again, and uh, may I echo what um, Shannon said before about Easter, invite you to invite friends and family along to the Easter services. It's always a great opportunity for us to, I guess, intersect with our community a little bit more publicly and to talk about the extraordinary nature of it. It's not just about chocolate and camping. Um, so on the Friday, we will um, have, I guess, the way it's been done the last couple of years, it'll be a reflective reading through of large slabs of text and, and reflections and prayers as we go. Um, what I thought we might do is uh, actually do it all from John. So a lot of the passages that we're, we're looking at, including today's, well, really starting with today's uh, and also next week's passage, we'll, we'll read those through again. So you'll have had a chance to reflect on them in the sermons uh, leading up to it and then we'll, we'll just hear them and pray them and reflect them so that'll be good friday and then on uh, easter day uh, jeff lynn is with us um, who is the um, campus director on the north terrace campuses of university ministry and he'll be answering the question imagine uh, a world where death wins so invite people along to that it'll be great to have a whole lot of visitors here over easter well, once again, I've given you a very helpful outline. I actually do, once again, have a very insightful and helpful outline that you could write down right now, if you like. The first point, there's two. The first point is the arrest. And the second point is after the arrest. <laughs> okay, sorry if that's not as helpful as you'd like. Let us, uh, let's begin with prayer. Father, we pray for your help, we pray for your presence with us, guide our minds and thoughts and the things that come to mind about our lives and about what you've done, and please, uh, please show us what you want us to see, in Jesus' name, amen. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Those are beautiful, famous words from the end of Romans 8, written by the Apostle Paul. Do you know them? Lots of nods, that's great. The full sentence says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, how is it that Paul comes to that position of being convinced of this? If you know it, Romans 8 comes at the climactic moment of the, the letter to the Romans. If you haven't read Romans, it's a must-read for Christians, although it requires a bit of hard work. He outlines the logic and the drama and the power and the certainty of the gospel over the course of eight chapters. But at this point of climax, at the end of the eighth chapter, Paul shares his personal conviction. I am convinced nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Convinced. Are you and I convinced? Or do we worry about death 
or demons, maybe your own personal demons or the spiritual kind? Or are we worried about the future, all sorts of things in creation, as if they might somehow snatch away our hope in Christ? Well, uh, as I was working through our passage from John's Gospel this week, yes, it is on John, not Romans 8, I had a strong sense of the unstoppable Jesus. In this very passage that recounts his betrayal and his capture and the shortcomings of all his followers and the first part of his trial, all the sorts of things that would normally indicate a person is completely passive and, and unable to do anything, being acted upon a victim in the story. In this very passage, Jesus is completely in control. Let's look through the passage for a few minutes and see just how in control he actually is because this is more than a, a story of a hero. You know, everyone loves to see the good guy win, but it's not every day that you hear the story in which your own life and your own eternal destiny hang in the balance. The drama here is real. We are caught up in this. Our future hangs on this story, on what Jesus does, what happens here. This is God in Jesus guaranteeing your salvation. So the passage splits into two halves, as I said before, the arrest and after the arrest. Let's look first of all at part one, the arrest. Now last week we looked at Jesus' prayer for his Father to glorify him and to protect, sanctify and unite his disciples and to connect them eternally to himself. All right, do you remember the prayer if you were here? Don't underestimate the importance of that prayer as the trigger for what happens next. This prayer, if you think about it, it was the word of God the Son to God the Father, and the word of God never fails. So in the same way that God says, let there be light, and there was light, well, if God the Son says, Father, glorify your Son so that your Son may glorify you, we can be absolutely sure that that is exactly what happens. The Word of God is certain. And so, chapter 18, verse 1, when Jesus had finished praying, he left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Jesus has now initiated the countdown to glory. The codes are in, the big red button has been pushed. Nothing now can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. It's happening. The plan is underway. His word and his power, and therefore what actually happens, they are totally tied together. Do you understand? So as we're about to see, this is not the case for the other characters in the story whose words and actions are completely out of touch with the truth of what is actually unfolding and what is happening. We start with Judas. He knows where Jesus goes to meet his disciples. Clever you. He cunningly guides the soldiers and officials, secret inside knowledge that will trip Jesus up, right? But verse 4, Jesus knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? 
He has effectively drawn them to himself. And yet, of course, it is their entirely their own wicked scheming and plotting that is to blame for this, even though Jesus is sovereignly knows it all. Into the garden he comes at the head of this little band of treachery. Imagine the impressions of the other disciples. Hey, is that, is that Judas? But it's more than disbelief. This whole scene is filled with fear. There's the darkness of night. There are the soldiers. Lanterns, torches and weapons. So incongruous, such a jolt to the story. Sure, we've had a kind of a verbal conflict along the way throughout the story. But here, under the shadow of darkness, out come the weapons of physical violence and control. And in the midst of this, Jesus acts. He went out to them and he asked who they're looking for. Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, verse 5. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. It's almost comic. I mean, not comic in the sense like he jumped out of the bushes and said, woo uh, No, he is, all he's done, he's simply spoken his name. He has said, I am. The name by which God identified himself to Moses at the burning bush where he was told to take off his sandals because he was standing on holy ground. Boy, here Jesus speaks the word and they all fall over. I love this. I've been... You know, busting to preach this sermon because I love this little verse. It brings this smile for me on the inside. It's a reassurance. In this man's presence, they cannot even remain on their feet if he doesn't want them to. It's a glimpse of the true Jesus, and yet it's only a tiny hint of his true glory. His intention here is to hand himself over, not to exercise his true power over them. And so he gives them another chance, verse 7. Sorry, who was it you wanted again? Perhaps a little little bit more sheepishly this time they said, Jesus of Nazareth. (laughs) Verse 8, Jesus says, I told you that I am he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. Who do you think is in control here? Well, verse 9 tells us that this happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. Remember what I said about when he speaks and then what happens? They're tied together because of his power and authority. Those words were fulfilled where he said, I have not lost one of those you gave me. And then what, what happens next makes me, I guess it reassures us again that Jesus is in control. Okay, Jesus, sorry, Peter He draws his sword and he lunges at the head of the high priest's servant. I mean, I assume he intended to do more than cut his ear off. He's just not a very good swing. Why was Peter not arrested? I mean, this is a detachment of soldiers and officials. They've come on dirty business. He has violently drawn blood against them. Who takes control of the situation? John tells us in verse 11, Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? 
and he hands himself over. Somehow, Peter is free to go. Peter, Jesus has spoken. His previous words are being fulfilled. I think it's striking that Peter is not arrested too. What do you make of Peter's act? You've got to admit it's courageous in the face of fear, isn't it? You know, Peter sometimes gets a hard time, but he's really launched himself into this one. He's throwing caution to the wind, perhaps hoping that Jesus would approve of his bravery. T.S. Eliot said, most of the evil in this world is done by people with good intentions. I think he's overstated it, but perhaps it's relevant in Peter's case. You see, aside from the violence of it, which is obviously wrong, I think Jesus' main criticism of Peter is that he is opposing God's will and potentially working towards Christ not doing God's will. This is serious, actually. By now, Peter knew that Jesus had to die, but perhaps he hadn't accepted it yet. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? That is the question of eternity. It hangs on that. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me, Peter? All the wisdom of the world, of course, would have said that the cross was a bad idea. If you're not a Christian, you probably think the idea of the Saviour going to the cross is a bad idea. And yet hanging on the answer to that question, shall I not drink the cup, dangles the salvation of the world. Thank you, Jesus, for drinking the cup. Part two, after the arrest. Now, we could call this section the trial, uh, but it also includes what's going on outside in the courtyard. And besides, this, this, the trial before Pontius Pilate is in the next section. We'll look at that next week. And what we've got here really is just some sort of hearing before the former high priest, Annas, who was the father-in-law of the present high, high priest, Caiaphas. And so we'll just call this after the arrest. Peter is center stage again. And he's obviously crept along behind the arrest party after they've taken Jesus. And he's got at least one other disciple with him. And the other disciple has contacts within the high priest's entourage and gets approval for Peter to come into the courtyard of the house, but not inside where Jesus is. The servant girl is on duty and she recognizes Peter from somewhere and she asks if he's one of Jesus' disciples. Peter replies, I am not. He's hanging around and he wants to know what's happened. And yet his courage, it was all blustery a moment ago, his courage has completely evaporated. He has shrunk back. And now he can't even admit to the servant girl that he's with Jesus. You and I know what it's like to hold on to a secret weakness. You've failed in something, but you can't do anything about it now. And perhaps you won't even admit it to yourself. We know what that's like. But meanwhile, the world ticks on. And we wonder if that weakness is going to go away. Well, verse 19, the high priest Annas 
questions Jesus about his disciples and his teaching, but Jesus isn't really interested in being cross-examined in private for what he has said in public. Verse 20, he says, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. And for saying this, Jesus gets a slap in the face from an angry official. Is this the way you answer the high priest? He demanded of Jesus. And Jesus basically says, well, if I've done something wrong, tell me what it is. The slap in the face, it shows something. There's a bit of a problem with this trial or hearing or whatever it is. How is this whole thing being conducted? There are no charges. There's no witnesses. There's just intimidation. And there is a sick irony in what this official asks as he slaps Jesus. How do you talk to the high priest? We might ask, how do you talk to the Son of Man? Do you hate him so much that you will throw a rule book at him and humiliate him with a slap without even finding out who he actually is? I mean, we do that too, don't we? Our society uses Jesus' name as a swear word and sometimes adds extra obscenities for emphasis. Do we hate him that much? People mock his miracles, they twist his words, they make up stories to humanise him somehow, like to bring him down and, and treat, him with, treat with contempt his offer of forgiveness, of sin. How do you treat the Son of Man? Is he on trial where, in a sense, he has to keep proving himself to you? Or maybe he's like a, like a kind of a brand that you, you'd like to be associated with. You know, you're not so much a Dalai Lama person, you're a Jesus person, but you're, you know, you're a spiritual person. Or is he someone who barely rates a mention for you? Are we slapping him too? Are we putting him back in his place? Well, back to the high priest's house. Jesus turns the tables. Normally, if you're on trial, you answer questions about accusations that are made of you. But in verse 23, Jesus replied, if I've, if I've said something wrong, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? He's asking the questions now. The official has broken the law. And now Jesus effectively prosecutes him in front of the high priest. In a way, the whole hearing is now, now seen for the sham that it really is. Annas can see this too, and he sends him off to Caiaphas. Peter, of course, is still outside, and as we know, he hasn't finished denying Jesus yet. He's obviously trying really hard to keep his identity on the down low, but he's about to get a big whacking dose of reality about himself. He denies Jesus again while he's standing around the fire. But it all comes to a head for him when Malchus's relative spots him. Oh, no. Hey, I saw you in the garden. Chopping my relative's ear off. And Peter denies for the third time, 
And it is precisely that moment that the rooster wakes up. Gee, what a rooster call. That rooster had no idea, did he, or, you know, of, of what a significant call it was that morning. You know, he's just doing his thing. But the rooster wakes up. Now, if, if you flip to Luke's Gospel, Luke tells us that Peter was actually in line of sight to Jesus. Perhaps it was through a window inside or something. And that Jesus turns and looks at Peter. Luke says, Peter went outside and wept bitterly. I think we can picture the sobs of regret, can't we? Down on his knees. Jesus, how could I have done this to you after all this? Let me flick back to John's Gospel. And there's more to this than just regret. Brothers and sisters, I want us to see this morning that Jesus is sovereign. This whole night, Jesus' authority and power and wisdom have been at the center of everything that has happened. Peter, Jesus knew you were going to do this. He told you. Back in chapter 13, just minutes after he told Judas what he was about to do. Just a few hours ago. Peter may have felt that he'd, you know, he'd come up pretty ineffective when the heat was on. He hadn't been a great deal of help at all to Jesus' ministry on this crucial night of all times. But despite his best intentions with the sword and his miserable failure with his words, Jesus is right where he intended to be. Heading to a Gentile court, innocent but sovereign. The great mystery of the cross that this could be God's plan. Because there's no doubt Jesus knew all of this that would happen beforehand and he played the active role at the centre of it all. To finish up, three points of application. And I'd like to address first any of you who are non, not Christians. Secondly, perhaps those who are new Christians, and thirdly, to well-travelled Christians. There might be a bit of overlap. But to those of you who are not Christians, let Jesus speak. As I said before, if you're, if you're not a Christian, the cross probably is the craziest idea in the world, right? Well, you know what? The Apostle Paul, who wrote Romans, he, in 1 Corinthians, talks of the foolishness of the cross in the eyes of the world. We may think that for something to be true, it needs to make sense to us. More than that, it, it probably should be the kind of idea that we would have come up with ourselves. And this doesn't really, this doesn't really fit that category, does it? But I guess when, when we're talking about the cross, beware of effectively slapping Jesus in the face. Why did he orchestrate all of these details that inexorably led to him going to his death? Why did he say that through this he would be shown for who he truly is, glorified in his words? If we're looking for humanity's solution to humanity's problem, the cross is not what we would come up with, right? It's not what we would have come up with. But what if the creator has come up with a solution to his creation's problem. 
Perhaps it's time to take Jesus off trial and to let him speak. To new Christians, secondly, and to all of us really, confess your secret weaknesses. As we come to get to know God better and the message of the cross, he shines a light into new corners of our lives. You know, Jesus, Peter's had a fairly significant role in this account, but Jesus isn't finished with Peter yet. In the final chapter of John's Gospel, Peter will be restored by Jesus. And that is the beautiful picture of faith in Jesus. We come to him as sinful perpetrators, not as successful performers. And so what we need to do is just continually confess our secret weaknesses. Peter's sobs of regret were part of him working things out. You know what Peter needed to do? Sorry, yeah, what Jesus needed Peter to do? He wanted Peter to go to rock bottom so that he could lift up Peter's head. Just a few verses from Psalm 113. The psalmist says, He raises the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes, with the princes of his people. That's what God is doing. He's raising up the lowly. So, brothers and sisters, I encourage you, confess your secret weaknesses and Christ will lift you up and grow you in faith. And finally, thirdly, to well-travelled Christians, a brief word of challenge. Are our words and actions out of touch with the truth? You know, have you slipped into legalism or into thinking the cross gives you license to act and think however you please? Remember, all the characters in the account were flawed except one. But those who would hear the truth about him and believe it would be restored. Sometimes mature Christians can, th- can think they've left sin behind. But Jesus is our saviour. We always remain flawed, even if we've believed in him for 70 years or more. So dwell on the truth of what Jesus has done for sinners and see your assurance and your confidence in him grow. Because all of us can say, I am convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father, as we consider Christ on this night, where perhaps he should have been disempowered, he was not. He was in full knowledge of all, and he willingly acted sovereign. And uh, our Father, through this we are greatly encouraged that this was always your intention, that for some reason he needed to go to the cross. And we know that it is your intention to bring forgiveness and, as we heard earlier, atonement through your work in Jesus on the cross. And we give you thanks for that. Please help us to let you speak. Please help us to confess our secret weaknesses. Please help us 
to cling fast no matter how long we've believed and to put our assurance in you knowing that this is all the plan and that Jesus is our saviour. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.